0: Thanks for joining us here at Fully Yours, our cross-country conversation where three friends share their latest adventures with food to reflect on the themes of
1: everyday life.
2: The matters of the heart.
1: We are fully yours because at the end of the day, food shows us just how truly, fully we belong to one another. Welcome to another episode of Fully Yours. As we mentioned in the starter episode of this season, we want to begin each episode with some sort of ritual that helps you feel a little bit grounded and centered in the topics of the day. So I'm going to lead us in a little meditation and would invite you wherever you are to, if you can, pause what you're doing. If you are seated somewhere um, to plant your feet on the floor or if you're near some grass or dirt to do so. Or if you are doing laundry, or you're washing dishes, or you're driving, um, just take note of what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're smelling. Just take a moment to be fully present to where, where you are, whatever you're doing, or whatever's going on with you, whatever's happened, whatever will happen today, and to take a deep breath. Notice what sensations emerge in your body, if you're holding tension or tiredness or pain or energy. Notice what thoughts emerge in your mind and let them come and let them go. And notice emotions that come up for you, emotions, feelings, particularly when you're confronted with a conversation or an experience related to race. Notice any discomfort or resistance or curiosity and allow them to be what they are. Acknowledge them and return to your breath. And as you continue breathing in and out, I want to make a connection to today's topic, which is about land. And it's easy to feel disconnected from the soil that is beneath us always, even if it's covered over with pavement or carpet or concrete. that we are always in relationship with the land. And I invite you to take another deep breath and open your heart and your mind as I share this quote, and this was said by Brahm Amadi, who is a leader of Community Foods Market, which used to be known as the People's Market, Oakland, California, who has access to land, and how it is used, transforms the very foundation and future of community. It can be a tool for oppressing or for empowering communities. How we as a society use land and for whom is one of the greatest examples of our values. It is also a clear sign of what lies ahead in our collective futures. And you're invited to take a last deep breath. And we will gather now at this virtual table for a conversation on um, land and the history of land and its relationship with race and racism in the United States. Eva, I really, really enjoyed that. I think that
0: was the, the first time that I've really ever meditated on the idea of land and race together. I'd been doing some research locally here. I'm in New England, and there's a lot of history here about Native American wars and land seizure and just a lot of really difficult realizations. You know, the the first time that I did this ritual, I was laying on my couch and just recognizing what privilege I had to put my feet up and, and to to just reflect on all that we've been given as white folks and to reflect on the people whose futures were stolen because of it. There's some really well-known farms and, and museums and plantations here in New England that have a very difficult history. And these are mansions. I mean, they are the most gilded, most beautiful, giant houses that people had the privilege to live in. And and unfortunately, the the folks that were forced to work that land did not get to see much of that house in the ways that, that they probably would have hoped. So I really, really appreciated this exercise, and I, I hope to do it more often because it's really important to remember whose land this really is.
2: I also found that quote that you shared really powerful. That's been a theme that I've been thinking a lot about is how how enmeshed our land, our relationship to land is to our relationship with our neighbors and the capacity there for people to use this relationship as one of oppression, because as Brahmamati says, it's who has access to the land and then also who is forced or has the privilege to labor it because labor can be, another means of, of oppression for certain groups of people. So that's, that's a reality that I thought a lot about and continue to as, as a community farmer. It's something that I've been wrestling with. And at the same time, it's, it is really a two-sided coin because I do truly believe that our relationship to land has the potential for healing our relationships with our neighbors probably because that was this place of trans transgression really and there's such a beautiful a beautiful capacity there for for healing and reconciliation and you see it again and again people being immersed in the land kind of grappling with these histories wherever they find themselves and their ancestors in these stories and the the healing that's possible there by just getting into the soil and kind of wrestling with these realities. So I think that's a very helpful quote and a helpful framing, I think, for for what we were hoping to talk about today.
1: Yeah, I think for me what's so powerful and difficult is how so much of that history is intentionally hidden from us. Particularly if you're white and you don't have to deal with the you're not your 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 descendants aren't necessarily living the the pain of past histories and yeah and, and at the same time i think this is getting to what you're talking about chloe with this opportunity to bring about reconciliation and healing there have also been really powerful movements of like here in arkansas there's a town called elaine which is in the southeast part of the state and last year i think was the 100th anniversary of the elaine massacre There were white, both white and black farmers who were organizing together to try and advocate for better working conditions, who were trying to kind of bring about liberation in the land together. I'm probably getting some of this. This is not a historically accurate account necessarily, but these are the pieces that I've learned. There was this movement, this counter movement, where this huge swath of white farmers then went and hundreds of... Black farmers and their families were run off or killed. And, um, you know, many of them were never found. The legacy of that is still very much alive in that town. And, you know, the descendants of the white farmers who either stole Black land or ran Black farmers off, you know, they're they're living on good land where they can grow a lot of good food. And then a lot of the descendants of the Black farmers are, have, like, consistently struggled with with harvesting good food for them and their families. And, yeah, and that's just so... That's such a present-day reality, and I think I often, so ma- and so many of us, don't realize the decisions made by our ancestors, which really wasn't even that long ago, um, are still very much affecting our relationship with land today.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated the way that you said that this history is often hidden. I was visiting a couple of friends in Louisiana. Gosh, this was probably like 2016 or 2017 and we decided to visit a plantation and they had a recorded guide that you could it was like a set of headphones and an iPod basically that you could walk around and listen to the the history of of the plantation and continually there were a lot of racist overtones and there were a lot of times that they referred to the slaves as servants and said, oh, the servants were treated well. They had their, you know, their servant quarters over here and they got three square meals a day and all this stuff. And like flat out lies. <laughs> like it's, it's just really, really disturbing to, to think about how hard we work to cover up this history. And, and part of uncovering it means that we have to learn to deal with it and, and come to terms with, these are our ancestors. We, we descend from a
1: long line of, of racism. So when I was doing some digging about how the history of land use has shown up in the United States, obviously um, the biggest sort of event, you know, is a history of forced labor through chattel slavery. And there's also this huge piece of history that precedes
2: that. So Christy and Eva, I noticed that all three of us are using um, the, the word we a lot, and that totally makes sense. We've said this before on the podcast that the three of us um, find ourselves coming from a shared identity that, that we three are white women. And so for any listeners who are joining us today for the first time, we just wanted to to clarify that that's where we're coming from. So sometimes when we say "we," that might be who we're, refer- we're referring to, because we know that for some people in our country, these histories are not hidden. Like they're a lived reality that, it, and the stories are passed down generation to generation because they're still really feeling the repercussions of what this has caused for them. But for many of us, especially white people who find ourselves in privilege, I think that is a part of privilege is kind of the the forgetting, like of the very intentional forgetting. And so wherever it happens generationally, I think when we start to, like you were saying, Christy, when we start to go back and uncover, it can feel, it it can bring up a lot of emotions because there's I think there's a reckoning with our own, for me, there's a reckoning with my own areas of where have I been in denial? Like where have I kind of known something was up, but not really dug into it. And then there's also frustration of where, you know, some things I did not learn growing up in my family and in our education system. And that's, there's an anger there because it's like, okay, why did we not learn this? So it's a, it's not, it's a mixture, but we just wanted to kind of, to be clear about that. So I think Eva you've kind of helped us form our episode today and have dug into some of the research around this and as you've said this is a huge a huge gosh not even topic like it's sort of the foundation of of a lot of what happens and where we find ourselves in this country and really in the world today and so This is a short episode and we're not going to be able to get into all of it, nor are we historians. But we wanted to um, kind of delve into three different points that you've started to tease out, Eva. And the first point was you, you were saying something about chicken or egg, how sort of that idea came up a lot in your research regarding maybe assumptions that some of us, especially as white people, have around slavery and or racism and its origins. Can you say a little bit more about that? So I think
1: for the purposes of really unpacking how land has been used in the United States, talking about racism and chattel slavery and the enslavement of Africans is really what we're talking about. There's also this whole other foundation that I had not even considered necessarily about slavery preceded this period in the United States Racial hierarchies preceded this period in the United States, and it took on its own phenomenon where the use of free labor, free in big air quotes, necessitated a system of racism and vice versa in a way. So it's sort of it's sometimes hard to know, like, which came first. A resource that really unpacks some of the hist- not only the history of racism, but the history of colonialism and kind of these interlocking forces between race and land exploitation is the 1619 Project. There's a podcast you can listen to. Um, there's incredible resources through that project. So highly recommend that you check that out. And this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's relevant. Something interesting that I grew up with as a Texan that is still alive and well is this idea that the issue of slavery or the issue of the Civil War was not about slavery, but about states' rights. Mm -hmm. And that was, I mean, that was mentioned to me on a regular basis throughout middle school and high school. Like, the history books have it wrong. Like, well, a lot of those history books would reiterate that. But I don't know exactly where the connection is with this topic. But to me, that's just indicative of this kind of intentional, not just erasing (laughs) what happened, but distorting it. Yeah, I just I just want to put that on the table because I feel like that those arguments about the Civil War and what it was about and how we're reckoning with things like Confederate monuments across our country, that's all part of this conversation, I think.
2: You you include a really helpful quote from the 1619 project and it says the transatlantic slave trade, which began as early as the 15th century, introduced a system of slavery that was commercialized, racialized, and inherited. Enslaved people were seen not as people, but at all, but as commodities to be bought, sold, and exploited. So I think that kind of helps really just show how how intertwined this system of of racism was with and is with labor and land and and profit for the people for the white people who enslaved others
0: and it's important to note too that that indigenous folks when their land was stolen they were also forced to work their own land for the profit of other people so it's it's not just african trade but certainly you know any any folks of color you know as as white people we have a lot of privilege that I don't think we'll ever understand. And Eva, you also make another point. You you mention um, in your research that the Jim Crow South and sort of the post-slavery period and that the Equal Justice Initiative, which is called the period of racial terror in the early decades of the 20th century history. Can you Can you talk more about that as well?
1: Yeah, so speaking a little bit more explicitly about the post-slavery period in the United States, you know, you have groups of, of Black farmers, for example, who are beginning to organize and do what they can to own their own pieces of land. Even in a post-slavery context in which racial hierarchy and what this organization, the Equal Justice Initiative, calls this period of racial terror, which was really a period of a lot of lynchings, particularly in the South. You have a lot of attempts for black farmers and their families to own land which which legally they could
2: legally they could but but as you just described it was near impossible for many folks because of the the intimidation and the violence right
1: so in this period
2: post-slavery kind of entering the jim crow
1: period especially in the south but these issues extended beyond obviously Even though it was legally possible for black farmers to own land, there were scores of tactics used by governments, by white farmers, every layer of society to intimidate and to keep people from, not only keep people from accessing land, but throwing them off of their own. Leah Penniman, who we mentioned in the first episode, um, she's an incredible writer and farmer, She wrote the book, Farming While Black, which is another resource we highly recommend. And uh, she has this powerful quote speaking about her ancestors. Our black ancestors were forced, tricked, and scared off the land until six and a half million of them migrated to the urban north. And this is the period of the Great Migration. And this was no accident. Just as the U.S. government sanctioned the slaughter of Buffalo to drive Native Americans off of their land so did the United States Department of Agriculture and the Federal Housing Administration deny access to farm credit and other resources. So even though it was, you know, as we mentioned, even though technically African Americans could own land at this point, as we see in so many layers of our society, racism and racial violence sort of took on different forms, particularly in the Jim Crow South. And then you have other laws like There's something called the California Alien Land Law of 1913. And this prohibited people from owning land and lots of other ways um, through the economic system, through unions, try and keep people from accessing land. And so this kind of brings us up to the current moment um, where now we're living with the legacies of all of these decisions that were made.
2: Eva, not only... You've shared with us not only were there barriers or or extreme violence towards people towards black people who had land or were seeking to own land, in addition, just resource allocation was was very biased and compromised, and so you talk about how the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a record of gross discrimination against Black people, but also Indigenous folks, Latinx folks, even women farmers of of I'm imagining um, all different uh, racial identities. And I think, gosh, that just seems, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the research, but that sure seems to reflect, you can cut this part out, but that just like really feels like the reality today where you have these giant massive monoculture farms in certain areas of the country and when you look at percentage-wise the number of farmers of color or yeah like that that has so systematically played out for a reason so thanks for raising that up yeah that's
1: that's the right word for it is systemization yeah which which we hear a lot about with a post-slavery United States too, and um, particularly like this whole period of lynching, which is also another layer of history that is made invisible to a lot of white people. You know, we think like, oh, life was pretty good in the 1920s, but it really wasn't for a lot of people. So the third point that we want to share is related a little bit more explicitly to the food system. Obviously, all of this that we've shared is a backdrop to the ongoing racial inequity. Inequities in our food system. Michael Twitty, who wrote the book The Cooking Gene, which we have also referenced in previous seasons of Fully Yours, just an incredible, incredible book. Highly, highly recommend, and we'll link this in the show notes. In The Cooking Gene, Michael Twitty is on his own discovery to uncover his ancestry, and um, he's a chef. Um, with many intersectional identities himself as someone who is Jewish and someone who is black and the really interesting layers of those identities. But in this book, he's particularly talking about how um, history of cuisine in the American South was completely tied to kind of the preservation of foods of folks who are enslaved in the, in the South. He talks a lot about sugar and how sugar, which is so prolific and is such a part of our lives, um, has this really deep political history. He talks about how even before slavery um, was given a racial context, so getting to some of that pre-slavery history, there were, there were folks who worked the land um, who were used as indentured servants who
2: harvested sugar. And this led to... And this was in the Mediterranean? Mm-hmm. Is sugar from the Mediterranean, or did they bring it back? It says, looks like it came from New Guinea.
1: A powerful example that Michael Twitty gives us is in The History of Sugar. And he goes into depth in his chapter, Sweet Tooth, in this book, The Cooking Gene. And he has this really amazing quote. To scholars of food, race, and economics the work of Sidney Mintz, and I don't know who Sidney Mintz is, but is a scholar that he's in conversation with. Uh, food is a powerful indictment of the way in which taste can become political and sway the stories of nations. And he talks about this journey that sugar made and its, its deep relationship with slavery, not only in the United States, but, but long before it. He talks about how Um, Sugar was by no means the only reason slavery began to grow and proliferate, he says. It is spectacular from the viewpoint of a descendant of the enslaved because of its power. The black journey in the Americas is founded on a human sense, the sense of taste. Slavery began with food. So anytime we are eating a sugary dessert, pretty much anytime we're eating anything, we're engaging with not only histories of violence but um, histories of resilience too and that's something that we mentioned in our first episode about you know these these histories grow up alongside each other particularly with food they're so intertwined that you can't really truly separate them out Um, but we see it as our responsibility to to try and uncover a little bit of that history and to learn not not only for ourselves but as leaders who want to do work around food and, and food justice, how do these histories shape what that work looks like?
0: So Eva, you introduced us to this incredible organization called Soul Fire Farm, and they're, they're close to me. They're in New York. Do you want to tell us more about it?
1: Yes. So this is Leah Peniman's farm that she co-founded. I highly recommend that you just look her up because she's been interviewed a lot lately. She's really become a force of really important conversation about, about what we've been talking about today, history of land, and um, and a lot of her work is really directed towards helping Black and Indigenous farmers, kind of the next generation of Black and Indigenous farmers, learn learn about basics of farming and And also getting into some of their ancestral foods and ways of growing foods and preparing foods. And something that their organization created that is so important and um, quite practical that I love is they created a, a reparations map. And so they basically mapped out a bunch of farms across the country. A lot of them are concentrated in kind of the New England Atlantic states area. And this is really just a map of. Black and indigenous farms who need support, particularly from those of us with white privilege and class privilege. They list resources that they might need, whether it's financial resources or farming resources. Um, So if you are someone who's connected to a farming community, um, highly recommend that you check it out. Um, And as we're encountering this conversation about reparations in, in our country, that's also a way that you can learn more about what that is and how you can take action. You can also like donate to Soulfire Farm. That's always something that they're in need of to continue to support their work. Another action I would recommend is even beyond Soulfire, just trying to get familiar with Black farms in your area um, and people who are doing who are doing work for Black communities around food, even if it's not explicit farming. Who are the the Black leaders and organizers in your community um, that that need support, and how can how can you and I and the three of us, as particularly as white ladies, follow their lead and support the work that that they're doing and that they've been doing for generations?
2: So we hope you check out the show notes. Um, we'll have a lot of notes from today's episode there, and that you will either take forward the ritual and even the action into your week ahead. And we look forward to seeing you at this table again in a few weeks. Huge thanks to our Dream Team for keeping us grounded and inspired, including Steve Dry and the Entrepreneur League based in Cambridge, Massachusetts for their input and support of our podcast. Shout out to Melody Stanford Martin for
0: our gorgeous logo design. And many thanks to you, our listeners.
1: If you like what you hear, be sure to check out our website at fullyyourspodcast.com for even more recipes, writings, and resources. Drop us a
2: line. We love hearing from you. And leave us a
1: review on
0: iTunes. It really means a lot.
1: Until next time, we are fully yours.